Okay, well, um, as we continue our study of Christology, uh, we're going to be talking today about the humanity of Christ. Uh, next week, Desmond will address the deity of Christ, and the following week, uh, then I'll look at the doctrine of the Incarnation specifically, and how the church has wrestled with these two biblical truths of the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ, and how we are to understand how these two natures come together in the one person, Jesus Christ. In past weeks, we've looked at uh, some theological characteristics of the revelation of Christ in the scriptures, and certain thematic connections which unite Old and New Testaments in their unfolding of the truth regarding the Redeemer, including various names and titles <clears throat> that are attributed to him throughout the scriptures. And now we'll look more specifically at what the scriptures teach about the person of Christ in regard to his nature. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology says, we may summarize the biblical teaching about the person of Christ as follows. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. This is a concise and helpful summary, and that is what we'll set out to examine in these coming weeks. As I said, uh, we'll begin today by looking at what the Bible says about the humanity of Christ. <clears throat> and uh, now as we begin to talk about the humanity of Christ, the most obvious place to start is with the virgin birth. And, of course, the virgin birth was the result of the miraculous conception of Jesus. The scriptures attest unequivocally that Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and without a human father. And we see this in passages such as Matthew 1, 18 and 20, uh, verses 24 and 25, and also in Luke 1, 35, and Galatians 4, 4. So let's go ahead and uh, read those. In Matthew 1, 18 to 20, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Then also over in uh, Matthew 1, 24 and 25, it says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So uh, this same fact then is affirmed in Luke's gospel, where we read about the appearance of the angel Gabriel to Mary 
after the angel had told her that she would bear a son, Mary said, how shall this be since I have no husband? And in Luke 1.35, he answered her, uh, saying, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. <clears throat> and so we, we've seen in these scriptures then that um, it was while Mary was a virgin that, that Jesus was conceived. She was still a virgin when Jesus was born and that uh, the conception came about by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, one other passage just to mention briefly is Galatians 4.4 4, where Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Um, now Wayne Grudem identifies three areas that highlight the, doc- the uh, doctrinal importance of the virgin birth for us. one he says that it shows that salvation ultimately must come from the Lord it was God who had promised in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman uh, would ultimately destroy the serpent so it was also God who brought it about by his own power this work was not accomplished through mere human effort but in the power and by the hand of of God. The virgin birth of Christ is an unmistakable reminder that salvation <clears throat> that salvation can never be the fruit of ordinary human effort, but must be the supernatural work of God himself. The truth that salvation is of the Lord was evident at the very beginning of Jesus' life when as we just read in the fullness of time God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Uh, Secondly, he points out that the virgin birth made possible the uniting of the full deity and full humanity in one person. This was the means that God used to send His Son into the world as a man. Um, Grudem suggests there may have been some other possibilities that God might have utilized, which uh, he, he, he examines a bit. And he talks about that God perhaps could have um, just formed Jesus as a fully uh, human person in heaven without utilizing the womb of, of Mary. Um, but he points out that uh, at least one issue there would be it would be very hard for us to see how Jesus could be fully human as we are Um, and we certainly wouldn't see him having any uh, connection to the humanity the line that we descend from through Adam he also suggested that perhaps excuse me it would have been possible for God to have Jesus come into the world with two human parents, both a father and a mother, um, and with his full divine nature miraculously united in his human nature at some point early in his life. Now, I can't conceive of how that would be necessarily, but um, the problem with that that he points out would be that it would 
then be very hard for us to understand how Jesus could be fully God since he would be like all other humans in every way, including his origin and conception. So when we think of uh, these two possibilities, it helps us then to understand how God, in his wisdom, ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ, so that his full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of his ordinary human birth from a human mother, and his full deity would be evident from the fact of his conception in Mary's womb by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, he points out that the virgin birth also makes possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. As we know, all human beings have inherited legal guilt and a corrupt moral nature from Adam. Uh, This is, of course, original sin. But the fact that Jesus did not have a human father means that the line of descent from Adam is partially interrupted. Jesus did not descend from Adam in exactly the same way in which every other human being has. And this helps us then to understand why the legal guilt and moral corruption that belongs to all other human beings did not belong to Christ. And we hear this in the statement of the angel Gabriel to Mary, where he says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called the Son of God. So it is because the Spirit brought about the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary that the child was to be called holy. <clears throat> this text, uh, Luke one thirty-five, connects the conception by the Holy Spirit with the holiness or moral purity of Christ. And this allows us to understand that that through the absence of a human father, Jesus was not fully descended from Adam, and that this break in the line of descent was the method used by God to bring about that Jesus was fully human and yet did not share the inherited sin from Adam. The miraculous work by the Spirit both circumvented the need for a human father and ensured that sin and corruption did not pass from Mary to Jesus. Again, he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, therefore the child will be, to be born will be called holy. Now there have been many who have denied the doctrine of the virgin birth, whether because they deny the truthfulness of Scripture or because they don't see any doctrinal relevance in it or because they hold that such a thing would be impossible. But if we recognize the authority of Scripture, then we cannot deny that it is plainly taught in the Scriptures and it is certainly relevant and it is is manifestly not too hard for God to bring about since He is the creator of all things. So if we're to understand then the biblical teaching on the person of Christ correctly, it is important that we begin with the affirmation of this doctrine. Well, number two on your outline, we see that 
Jesus had human weaknesses and limitations. And here we will be covering a lot of scriptural ground, so I'm going to ask you to help me with the reading as we go, and also encourage you to copy down these scripture references, because there will be a lot of them, and we won't have much time to comment upon them. Can you say speak a little louder? This. Why is it important to include Joseph's genealogy when Christ is not genetically related to Because he would have um, been adopted by Joseph and would have had the same hereditary rights, and so his connection with the Davidic line is is important in that regard. His connection to Joseph connects him to. I'm sorry. That to the Davidic line? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, so... <clears throat> number two, then, the human weaknesses and uh, limitations. Uh, first, in this area of human weaknesses and limitations, we see that Jesus had a human body. <clears throat> And in Luke 2.7, tells us that he was born as a human baby like all of us. It says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Luke 2.40 says that he grew through childhood to adulthood like everyone else. It says, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And Luke 2.52, we learn that he increased in wisdom and in stature. So we see his, his physical growth, um, again, <clears throat> affirmed there. Uh, in this next set of scriptures, we see that Jesus got weary and thirsty and hungry. Um, again, facing the uh, limitations and suffering, the weaknesses common to all men. John 4, 6 says, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So it says that he was wearied, he was also thirsty there. And this next text also speaks of his thirst in John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And Matthew 4, 2 says that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, as would be any ordinary human being. <clears throat> Luke also records that his physical human body died, which is the ultimate evidence of his physical human limitations, and we see this in Luke 23, 43. And can I get somebody to read this? He said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
Okay, so, <clears throat> so here Jesus was uh, very close to death, and he anticipated his death. Um, and just as the other thief died, Jesus died, and um, it would, they would end up going to the same place here as Jesus uh, was working for his salvation even while he was dying on the cross. <clears throat> and um, it also, we see in Luke that he rose with a human body, though is now glorified. And we see this in chapter 24, verse 39, and also 42 to 43, if somebody could read that for me. Okay, so we see him in his resurrected state um, in, in a physical human body, even eating. And then also he ascended into heaven in a human body and will return to the earth in a human body as we see in Luke 24, 50 and 51 and in Acts 1, 11. And it says there, then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And in Acts 1.11, and he said, Men of Galilee, what, this is the angel speaking, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The way in which Jesus ascended up into heaven was meant to demonstrate the continuity between his existence in a physical body here on earth and his continuing existence in that body in heaven, the same body in which he will return. In addition to having a human body, we see in scripture that Jesus had a human mind <clears throat> with its human weaknesses and limitations. Um, this means that it was necessary for Jesus to grow not only in stature but in wisdom and in knowledge. He went through a learning process just as other children do. He learned how to eat, how to talk, how to read, how to write. He had to learn obedience in his temptations and suffering. And there were some things which remained outside of his human knowledge while on earth. Luke 2.52 tells us, again, that he increased in wisdom uh, as well as stature and in favor with God and man. And in Hebrews 5.8 it says that he learned obedience. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And in Mark 13.32 it reveals there that he did not know the day of his return, it says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. <clears throat> so he had a human body, he had a human mind, and he had a human soul and human emotions. <clears throat> 
And we see this in many places. John speaks of Jesus' soul being troubled in John 12, 27 and in 13, 21. As Jesus was anticipating the cross, he says, "Now Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And in 1321, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This word troubled is terasso in Greek, and it is used, for example, to speak of the fact that Herod was troubled when he heard that the wise men had come looking for the new king of the Jews in Matthew 2.3. Also, the disciples were troubled when they suddenly saw Jesus walking on the sea and thought that he was a ghost, Matthew 14.26. Also, Zechariah was troubled when he suddenly saw an angel appear in the temple in Jerusalem in Luke 1.12. And the disciples were troubled when Jesus suddenly appeared among them after his resurrection in Luke 24.38. But the word is also used in John 14.1 and 27 when Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. It is obviously a very strong emotion of being unsettled or anxious or suddenly surprised by some danger. As the shadow of the crucifixion loomed before him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to his disciples in Matthew 26, 38, My soul is very sorrowful even to death Remain here and watch for me. Jesus was enduring there was a very heavy sorrow, such that he felt that if it were any worse, his very life would end. Of course, we remember also in John 11.35 at the grave grave of Lazarus, Lazarus, uh, Jesus wept. But John also says twice in that context that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and that he was greatly troubled. Again, these indicate a very strong emotion, um, particularly here, uh, an anger over the ravages of sin and death. The author of Hebrews tells us about Jesus' prayers in Hebrew, Hebrews uh, 5.7, saying, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now another way that the scriptures show Jesus' true humanity is that other people saw him as only a man. And we mention here just two texts on this point. First in Matthew 13, 53 to 58, Matthew tells us that those in his own village saw him this way. It says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. 
so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get such wisdom and these mighty works? Is it not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And then in John 7, 5, he tells us that even his own brothers did not believe in him. So even those closest to him who lived with him and knew him best saw him as no more than an ordinary human being. So this shows us how truly and authentically human Jesus was. Now, although Jesus shared in all the limitations of true humanity, he never sinned. So uh, let's look now then at the sinlessness of Jesus. It is the uniform teaching of Scripture that while Jesus was fully and truly man, he was without sin. Uh, Consider these many texts that uh, affirm this. And I'm going to ask volunteers to, uh, to read these for me. In Luke 4:13, um, after 40 days the devil ended his temptations because he could not get Jesus to sin. Can somebody read that? And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him. Okay. And then in John 8:29, he, he tells us that he always does what's pleasing to the Father. Always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Uh, in John 15.10, He says He's kept the commandments. Okay. Yeah, and this is a comprehensive statement. I have kept my Father's commandments. He had not broken any of the commandments. John 18, 38, even um, at, at, uh, before the bar of Pilate, they couldn't find guilt in him. Okay. And... Um, There are uh, many texts throughout Acts and and other places, but we see particularly in Acts where he is repeatedly called the Holy One or the Righteous One. Acts 2.27, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Acts 3.14, But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Acts 4.30 While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then in Acts 7.52 This is uh, Stephen in his sermon before his martyrdom. 
Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And then in Acts 13.35, says, Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. <clears throat> so all of these speak of Jesus' holiness, his righteousness, his sinlessness. Um, also in 2 Corinthians 5.21, um, Paul tells us that for our sake, he, Jesus, or, or he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15, <clears throat> speaking of Jesus as our great high priest, he is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. <clears throat> also, 1 Peter 2.22, he says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. In 1 John 2.1, he's called Jesus Christ the righteous. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And then also in 1 John 3.5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. So there's no escaping then the biblical teaching that Jesus was absolutely holy, that he was perfectly righteous without sin of any kind. But again, as Hebrews 4.15 says, he was without sin even though he had been tempted as we are in every respect. So um, the temptations that uh, Jesus endured... Um, <clears throat> and that he re resisted to the full extent, were very real, were many, and were very intense. So let's uh, look briefly then at, at um, the account of his temptation in the wilderness in Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. And here it says... <clears throat> Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. 
and he said to them, all of these said to him, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Now, as we <clears throat> consider the nature of his temptation in the wilderness, uh, here as well as in Mark 1 and in Luke 4, we see that the essence of these temptations was an attempt to persuade Jesus to escape from the hard path of obedience and suffering that was appointed for him as the Messiah. That's what Satan was appealing to. Um, to give him a shortcut to glory. Um, Jesus, uh, it says in Luke 4, 1-2, was led by the Spirit for 40 days in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. In many respects, <clears throat> this temptation was parallel to the, to the testing of Adam and Eve that they faced in the Garden of Eden. But it was much more difficult. Adam and Eve had fellowship with God and with each other, and they had an abundance of all kinds of food, for they were told only that they could not eat of the one tree. And by contrast here, Jesus had no human fellowship, and he had no food to eat. And after he had fasted for 40 days, he was near the point of physical death from his... Uh, from his lack of, of sustenance. Wayne Grudem points out that these temptations were really the culmination of a lifelong process of moral strengthening and maturing that occurred throughout Jesus' childhood and early adulthood as he increased in wisdom and in favor with God and as he learned obedience through what he suffered. So he didn't come into this context um, without having been already tried through, through many different circumstances as he was growing up and he had learned obedience the whole time. In these temptations in the wilderness and in the various temptations that faced him through the 33 years of his life, <clears throat> Christ obeyed God in our place as our representative, thus succeeding where Adam had failed where the people of Israel in the wilderness had failed, and where we had failed. <clears throat> Again, Grudem says, as difficult as it may be for us to comprehend, Scripture affirms that in these temptations, Jesus gained an ability to understand and help us in our temptations. And this is what Hebrews 2.18 says, For he himself... For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. So he knew the suffering and temptation, and it is through that that he is able to help us and sympathize with us in our own struggles and suffering. In Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, the author goes on to connect Jesus' ability to sympathize with our weaknesses to the fact that he was tempted as we are. 
says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But in looking at Jesus' temptations, um, it raises questions for us. Could Jesus have sinned? Would it have been possible for the incarnate Son of God to transgress the law of God, to disobey the will of God, to despise the holiness of God? Could Jesus have sinned? Some people argue for the impeccability of Christ, uh, which means that he was not able to sin. Others object that if Jesus were not able to sin, then his temptations could not have been real. For how can a temptation be real if the person being tempted is not able to sin anyway? Well, when we consider this, um, here's what we can definitively say from direct and explicit teachings of Scripture. One, Scripture clearly affirms that Jesus Christ never actually sinned, as we've seen. There should be no question in our minds as to this fact. Second, it also clearly affirms that Jesus was tempted and that these were real temptations. If we believe Scripture, then we must insist that Christ in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And third, we must affirm with Scripture that God cannot be tempted with evil, as it says in James 1.13. But if Jesus is fully God and fully man, there must be a sense in which Jesus could not be tempted. The Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted and that Jesus was fully man and that Jesus was fully God and that God cannot be tempted. So how do we make sense of this and stay faithful to Scripture? Well, Gerhardus Voss and uh, Wayne Grudem are are helpful here. Um, So with these things in mind, it's appropriate to say this. One, if Jesus' human nature had existed by itself independent of a divine nature, then it would have been a human nature just like that which God gave to Adam and Eve. It would have been free from sin, but nonetheless, it would have been able to sin. Therefore, if Jesus' human nature had existed by itself, there was the theoretical possibility that Jesus could have sinned just as Adam and Eve's human natures were able to sin. It's part of being human. Secondly, but Jesus' human nature never existed apart from union with his divine nature. From the moment of his conception, he existed as truly God and truly man as, as well. 
both his human nature and his divine nature existed united in one person. Thirdly, although there were some things, such as being hungry and thirsty and weak, that Jesus experienced in his human nature alone and were not experienced in his divine nature, nevertheless, an act of sin would have been a moral act that would apparently have involved the whole person of Christ. Therefore, if he had sinned, it would have involved his human and divine natures. Fourthly, but if Jesus as a person had sinned, involving both his human and divine natures in sin, then God himself would have sinned and he would have ceased to be God, which is clearly an impossibility because of his infinite nature and his holy nature. So concluding then, fifthly, therefore, if we are asking if it was actually possible for Jesus to have sinned, it seems that we must conclude that it was not possible. The union of his human and divine natures in one person prevented it. So did everybody follow that line of reasoning? He had a truly human nature that considered in itself would have been able to sin, but that human nature never existed apart from his divine nature. And so any sinning of the person of Jesus would have involved the divine nature, which is an impossibility for the divine nature to be involved in sin. And therefore Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, could not have sinned. Um, it would, would have been an impossibility. <clears throat> so then the question comes then, how were Jesus' temptations real if ultimately he couldn't have sinned? Uh, the example of the temptation in the wilderness to change the stones into bread is helpful in considering this. Jesus had the ability by virtue of his divine nature to perform this miracle. But if he had done it, he would no longer have been obeying in the strength of his human nature alone. <clears throat> he would have failed the test that Adam also failed, and he would not have earned our salvation for us. Therefore, Jesus refused to rely on his divine nature to make obedience easier for him. In like manner, it seems appropriate to conclude that Jesus met every temptation to sin, not by his divine power, but on the strength of his human nature alone. With the caveat that, of course, he was never ultimately alone because Jesus, <clears throat> in exercising the kind of faith that humans should exercise, was perfectly depending on God the Father and the Holy Spirit every moment. So he was walking in obedience and in the power of the Spirit, but by his human nature, he, um, he remained obedient. The moral strength of his divine nature was there as a sort of backstop that would have prevented him from sinning in any case, uh, and therefore we can say that it was not possible for him to sin, but he did not rely on the strength of his divine nature to make it easier for him to face temptations. And his refusal to turn 
the stones into bread at the beginning of his ministry is a clear indication of this. <clears throat> so were the temptations real then? Many theologians have pointed out that only the one who successfully resists a temptation to the end most fully feels the force of that temptation. And since Jesus never gave in but outlasted every temptation, he felt their force most acutely. <clears throat> well, um, very quickly now, we will talk about why Jesus' full humanity was necessary. Um, Because he is fully human, he can perfectly accomplish our salvation. Um, Being, first of all, our representative uh, to obey God on our behalf, as we see in Romans 5, 18 to 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So his humanity was necessary that he could stand as our representative, that by his obedience we could be made righteous. Secondly, as our substitute to die for sin in our place, as we see in Hebrews 2, 16 to 17, says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be like, made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So, as our representative, as our substitute, and also as our example. Um, first is our example in the, that we should follow in life. 1 John 2.6 Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We see Jesus' faithful life of obedience as a man empowered by the Spirit and this is the way that we are to walk. He's also our example in the pattern that he sets for our own redeemed bodies, which we see in 1 Corinthians 15, 42-44. So is it with the resurrection from the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So what will become of our bodies is the same as what became of Christ's uh, in his glorious resurrection. Then fourthly, um, as our sympathetic high priest, Hebrews 2.18, as we've seen, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Then as our mediator, to be the one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, 
as it says in 1 Timothy 2.5. And then also, finally, to be the human ruler over all of creation, so that a man in God's image might rule over the creation, as we see in Hebrews 2.8, where everything was put in subjection under his feet, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, goes on to say, but we see Jesus. Um, And uh, he is the the risen, glorified God-man in that position of reigning over all things. So finally, when we... When Jesus took on our humanity in the Incarnation, He became a man forever. After the resurrection, as we've seen, Jesus continues with a true human nature. In Luke 24, 39, He identifies Himself as having flesh and bones. He says, see my hands and my feet, for it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. In Acts 1.11, it says that Jesus will come in the same way he left, the same man in the same human nature. Again, the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus whom, who was taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In Acts 7:56, Jesus saw, or Stephen saw Jesus in his glorified humanity, and he said, "Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God." Revelation 1:13, in his exalted state, his humanity is evident as John sees again one like the Son of Man. It says, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. We also see then in Matthew 26, 29, Jesus says he will drink wine with his disciples in the Father's kingdom. I tell you that I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Just as the man, Jesus, consumed the wine at that last supper, so he will, the same man, consume wine with his disciples in the kingdom of heaven. Um, As we also see in Revelation 19.9, he will feast with us at the great marriage supper in heaven. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And so, Jesus is a man, he's forever a man. From the time he was conceived in the womb of Mary, he took on a human nature and permanently um, abides in that nature, and um, in that nature, he's provided redemption and an eternal hope 
for all of those who trust in him, that our natures can be conformed to his perfect, holy, and righteous human nature. So, are there any we, questions? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, <clears throat> it, is, it is indeed a heavenly body. Paul makes that clear in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. What is sown is uh, mortals, raised immortal. What is sown a natural body is raised a spiritual body. So it is a, it is a heavenly body. So there's, there's a degree of discontinuity between the body that was sown and the body that was raised. But he does say the body that was sown is the body that was raised. So there's continuity there. Um, he came in human form. He came as a man to redeem man. And in, in that form, um, in that nature, uh, he has provided that redemption so that we could attain to the same glorified status that he has. And so there is um, a degree of difference, a significant degree of difference, but, it, but it's not a change of nature. He he's, uh, is and will, will always be fully divine, and since the incarnation, he is and will always be fully human, but now a glorified human. So, does that? Possibly. I mean, what prevents a third transformation at this point? Or at, like, when you get that? Why? Is there something preventing that? Or, well, I would, I would say the purpose of God um, being the redemption of, of his people to his glory. Um, he made man in his image. That image was, was marred and corrupted through sin. Christ came bearing the same image in the same humanity to redeem that which had been fallen and corrupted so it could be restored to what it was intended to be and raised to the height of glory that, uh, that he had intended from the beginning. So never is there introduced a concept of, of any other kind of nature or any further development. We, we've got you know, various orders of beings. We have God, we have angels, we have men, and we have animals. And men are always to be men, and we're um, in Christ raised to be glorified men and women. So, um, good questions, though. Um, we're going to have to uh, go ahead and close in prayer. Thank you for your attention.